Well, good morning. For those that I don't know, my name is Matt Morton. I'm the teaching pastor at our Creekside campus. Uh, I don't know if you, like me, ever had a book that you had to read, maybe in junior high or maybe in high school, that didn't really connect with you. Uh, Probably a classic book. For me, that book that I had a hard time with in junior high or high school, I can't remember exactly when, that book was called The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, I hear by the reaction that you've read it also. I struggled with this book. I struggled with it on page one. I struggled with it on page 100 when I finished the book. It's really not that long of a book, but it felt like a very long book to me because the language was archaic. The story was something I didn't really get at that age or understand. And so I I didn't like it. As an adult, I've had a couple of people who are fans of the book come back and say, you know, you you really should give it another try. Now that you're a grown-up, you might find that you like it. And my response has always been, I don't want to do that. One of the advantages of being a grown-up is I don't have to read books that I hate, that I don't like. So I've never gone back and reread it. Now, if you can access that feeling that I have about that book, uh, I'm sharing it this morning because my guess is that some of you in this room, when you look at my slide and you see the word Leviticus, you feel the same way. You feel like, I know that Leviticus is one of those books that I should read. It's part of the Bible. It's part of God's word. But I've tried and it was boring And it was archaic, and it was hard to muddle through. I know that for some of you, your read the Bible in a year plan died a cruel death in Leviticus. I know that. Somewhere around February, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when I gave this sermon at our Southwood campus, somebody came up to me and said, I am so familiar with Genesis and Exodus, because I read them every year, and then I fizzle out in Leviticus. I know it's difficult to understand. And to top it off, uh, my topic this morning is holiness. Another topic that we don't know a lot about and that maybe we even feel uncomfortable with. Holiness evokes images maybe of some uh, old guy out in the desert with a white robe and a long beard and a staff saying, repent, turn or burn. There aren't a lot of conversations today about the subject of holiness. There aren't a lot of songs about holiness being written anymore. A lot of songs about the love of God. A lot of songs about the grace of God. Even a lot of songs about the power of God. But you'll notice this morning, the song about holiness that we sang is 200 years old. Because it's not a topic we think about or talk about or write about or sing about. Very much. And yet, holiness is one of the most important concepts in the entire Bible. In the Old Testament alone, the words for holy and holiness are used more than 600 times. In the book of Leviticus alone, where we will be this morning, the words for holy and holiness are used more than 100 times. And it's not just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, which is much shorter, the words for holy and holiness are used more than 200 times. 
over and over and over and over again, the scripture tells us not only about the holiness of God, but the scripture also commands us as God's people to be holy as God is holy. One of the most important concepts in the Bible, yet a concept we really don't understand. And I'm going to say something this morning that might surprise you. It might not, but it might surprise you. And here it is. If you want to know God, If you say, I want to be like Jesus, you have to understand and pursue holiness. There is no way to have a growing, thriving, deep relationship with God apart from pursuing holiness. Now, let me be clear. We receive eternal life simply by believing That Jesus died for our sin and rose again. All who trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life are given eternal life as a free gift. But what I mean is that as God's people, we are called to reflect his character. As God's people, we are called to proclaim the gospel. And the scripture is clear. You cannot grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. You cannot say, I want to be like Jesus if you don't want to pursue holiness. It's that important. And probably no other book of the Bible deals with the subject of holiness with as much depth and detail as the book of Leviticus. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. If we say, I want to know God deeply, I want to know Jesus more, I want to be like Jesus, therefore I want to be holy, we're going to look at a few issues surrounding holiness this morning. I'm going to talk about what it is. How do we define holiness? We're going to talk about uh, what does it look like and why should we pursue it? And then last, and and maybe most critical for us, what do we do when we fail at holiness? What options do we have when we fall short of the holiness of God? Before I dive into the book of Leviticus, though, let me just set a little bit of context. As we've been going through the first, uh, or the second four books of the Pentateuch, I should say, beginning with Exodus and now moving to Leviticus, you remember that where we are in the history of the nation of Israel is that God had led the people out of Egypt through his power And in his love, he had gathered the people of Israel together. And he says, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. And when you get to the promised land, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. That is Israel. I want you to be people who represent who I am and help all of the nations to know who I am. So the nation of Israel is called to worship God, to proclaim God. And to draw others to know God. So they leave Egypt and now they're in the wilderness. And you remember several weeks ago, Brian talked about the incident with the golden calf. The incident with the golden calf happens right in the middle of God giving instructions to the people for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place where they would worship God. Where they would bring offerings to God. And as they moved around in the wilderness, the tabernacle moved with them. And in the center of the tabernacle and later in the temple was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided and God's glory could be seen. And yet right in the midst of that, the people dive into idolatry. They worship a God of their making and they break their covenant with God. But remember, God in his mercy and in his grace, he forgives the people. He disciplines them, but he forgives them, reestablishes his covenant. And then the remainder of the book of Exodus involves the building of the tabernacle. 
And then we get to the book of Leviticus. And essentially the book of Leviticus says this. Now that you have the tabernacle, now that you're a gathered people, this is how I want you to worship me. If you're called to be a kingdom of priests, if you're called to be a people set apart for me, This is what your worship ought to look like. This is what your life ought to look like. It needs to look different from the nations around you. So here's a quick flow of the book of Leviticus, a quick outline. You have regulations for offerings, the types of offerings the people are supposed to bring and how the priests are supposed to offer them in the tabernacle. You have regulations for the priests, what they're supposed to wear, how they're supposed to purify themselves before they make offerings, even who they're allowed to marry, what they do if they come into contact with some sort of ritual uncleanness. There are things in there about how priests can't go to just any old funeral. They're only allowed to go to a funeral for somebody who is in their immediate family because priests ministering so close to the presence of God have to be particularly set apart and holy. There are regulations for ritual purity for the people, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you do to cleanse yourself if you get sick or have leprosy or there's some sort of uncleanness in your house. The Day of Atonement, which Brian talked about when he talked about the feasts and festivals. The Day of Atonement, what we know now as Yom Kippur, the highest holy day in the Jewish calendar where once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people over the previous year. And then the section we're going to look at this morning is what's called the Holiness Code. It's chapters 17 to 26. It's called the Holiness Code because multiple times in this section we have this phrase where God says to the people, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. And then chapters 17 to 26 describe what does it look like to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so we want to begin with this question of what is holiness? If God has called his people to be holy, then how do we define holiness? What is it? I want to offer a definition and then I'm going to give a couple of illustrations of holiness. Here's my definition. When we look at the word holiness in the scripture, to be holy is to be uncommon or other Or set apart for a special purpose. So if I say something is holy, what I mean is you are set aside or apart from things like sin and impurity. And you are set aside for those things that are of God. To be holy in common terms is simply to say whatever this item or whoever this person is, it's not meant to be used for simply common purposes. Uh, The Old Testament uses the word profane, which essentially means common or everyday. Let me give you an illustration. Several years ago, I walked into our kitchen and I ran across this item sitting on the counter. Uh, My daughter had made some cookies and then after she made them, she had placed on the container a sign that says, for school, do not eat daddy. Now, I I was offended by this, I'm not going to lie, because there are five people in our house who could eat the cookies. I'm not the only person who has ever eaten a cookie. But apparently she felt when she made the cookies that I was the greatest threat to these cookies making it to school like she intended. So she thought about it and she said, Daddy, don't eat them. What is she saying? These are holy cookies. 
These cookies are set apart from the ordinary. They're set apart from ordinary, everyday, profane people like you, Daddy. And they are set aside for special people like my classmates who get these cookies. That's holiness. Not intended for common use. Intended for special use. The first time we see the word holiness in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter 2. At the end of God's creation, it says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. Why is the Sabbath day designated as holy? Well, that's simple. It's not like the other days. On all the other days, you do your normal work in the fields with your animals. But on the seventh day, you do something different. It's set aside. It's set apart from the common and set aside for worshiping God and resting. The seventh day is holy. The next time we see the word holiness is actually when God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God says to Moses, do not approach any closer. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Why is it holy ground? Because God is there. Because God's presence is there speaking to Moses from that bush. Why does he have to take off his sandals? Because Moses has been walking around in those sandals throughout the desert. And he's picked up dirt and particles and all kinds of things that are now on the bottom of his shoes. And so as he approaches this holy ground, the idea is that this ground is set aside from all the other ground. Don't bring in the things from other places into this place. So you take off your sandals. It's set apart. It's holy. Reserved for God's purposes, at least at this time and in this place. So when we talk about Holiness, what we mean again is set apart from the common and set aside for the things of God. When we talk about the holiness of God, what we mean is that God is different from us. God is greater than us, more powerful than us, purer than us. God is set apart and higher than us. And when we talk about the holiness of God's people, then we say, because God is holy, and we'll see this in a minute, we are called to be also set apart from sin, set apart from the way that the world conducts its affairs, and instead set aside for the purposes of God. That's holiness. To be uncommon, other, set apart for a special purpose. So then as we look at the scripture, the second question is this, why are we called to be holy? And I've said it a couple of times, but I want to drill into it in a little bit more detail for a few minutes. Why should we be holy? The scripture answers this by saying, because God is holy and he wants us to be like him so that others can know him. You and I are created in the image of God, designed to be like him, designed to reflect him and holiness is a way that you and I reflect the character of God. As God instructs his people, beginning in the Old Testament, to be holy, he says this in Leviticus chapter 11, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, and you are to be holy because I am holy. At the center 
of who God is, is this concept of holiness. And so God says, if you are my people, made in my image, designed to reflect me, if you're part of my family, then you have to pursue holiness if you want to be like me. How important is holiness to God's character? Well, we get a hint of this as we move throughout the Bible. When the prophet Isaiah sees a a vision of the throne room of God, here's what he sees. Isaiah chapter 6, he says, Seraphs, seraphs were a type of, of angel. It means the burning ones or the bright ones. Seraphs stood over him. Each one had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And they used the remaining two to fly. They called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord who commands armies. His majestic splendor fills the entire earth. And what we see is after Isaiah sees this, he says, woe is me. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm not holy. And so an angel flies over and purifies his lips with a coal. But these angels fly around God's throne and what do they sing? Holy, holy, holy. The apostle John in the book of Revelation sees the same picture. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings and was full of eyes all around and inside. They never rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the all-powerful or the almighty, as we sang a few minutes ago, who was and who is and who is still to come. Now get this for just a minute. In the Hebrew language, if you want to emphasize something, you don't have italics, you don't have bold like we do today, you can't put it in all caps necessarily, everything was in all caps anyway. And so what you do is you repeat it. So in other words, if you want to say that somebody is nice, you might say to them, you are nice, nice. If you want to say to your wife, you are beautiful, and you want to say you are really beautiful, you might say you are beautiful, beautiful. If you really want to kick it up another notch, you just say it again. You are beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So what these angels do is they fly around the throne room of God, and here's what they sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And then John says they they never stop saying it. They, They go back again and they say it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And they never stop saying it day and night for all of eternity. That's their one job, is to proclaim the holiness of God. I know that some of you from time to time, you complain about the repetition of modern praise choruses. This one would drive you crazy. (laughs) Because that's all they say. I thought about asking Rob this morning to sing holy, holy, holy 17,000 times until you felt awkward. Because that's their whole job. That's how significant the holiness of God is. So when God says you are to be holy because I am holy, God is saying, if you want to be like me, if you want to reflect me, you've got to pursue this. You've got to be holy because we're part of his family. We are his children. Many years ago, when I was, when I was a kid, we had a cat. The cat's name was Butterball. 
And Butterball had several litters of kittens right in a row. So we had like 15 kittens over the course of just three or four months. I mean, this was a very prolific animal. And uh, (laughs) at one point, I remember walking into our garage and I saw Butterball on the floor of the garage with her kittens. This litter had four kittens And right in the middle of them was a bird that Butterball had brought in from the outside. I don't remember if the bird was alive or dead at this point. But what I do remember is that as they circled around that bird, I saw Butterball step forward and she pounced at the bird. And then she backed up. And then one of the kittens on her left jumped forward and pounced at the bird. And then backed up and then the next one and then the next one. And then the next one around the circle. And they did it several times. It was both very brutal and really cute at the same time. (laughs) But what was she teaching them? Here's what she was teaching them. Is I am a hunter. Therefore you are to be a hunter. Now we fed her from a can. She didn't actually need to hunt. But this was in her blood. The idea is if you're going to be a cat, if you're going to be like all of the cats who came before you, you are a hunter because I am a hunter. If you're a parent, you've probably expressed something like this to your kids. Maybe at some point they've been sassy to you or they've lied to you. And what have you said? You said something like this. You go, you are not to lie because Mortons don't lie. We are honest people. You are not to be sassy because Mortons speak to people with respect. And then you go, you know what? It may be that all your friends' families let them talk to their parents that way. But not in this house. You'll be respectful because that's who our family is. God says, nation of Israel, you will be holy. Because I am holy. And he'll even say, you know what? It may be that the Egyptians out there and the Canaanites out there, this is how they live. I want you to be different. Because you're called by my name. Therefore be holy. For I am holy. So then as we move through the book of Leviticus, the next question is how do we pursue it? And that's what Leviticus chapter 17 to 26 is about. Leviticus 17 to 26 is what appears to be almost a comprehensive description of what holiness would look like in the life of the daily Israelite. Let me show you a few of the ways in which Leviticus encourages the people to be holy. First of all, Leviticus says we are called to be holy with our worship. Leviticus chapter 17 begins by saying, if you're going to make an offering to God, if you're going to offer an animal to God, You have to bring that offering into the tabernacle. Or later it would be in the temple. You cannot just go out in the wilderness and make an offering wherever and however you please. And the reason for that is as the people moved into the land, and in fact this this would happen later in the history of Israel, there would be people living way up in the north part of Israel. And Jerusalem and the temple, that was a long way away. And so when they were supposed to travel to Jerusalem to make offerings, instead of making that long journey, they'd go, you know, that's too far. Why don't we just set up an altar right here and we'll make an offering to God wherever we want. 
And of course, what that always turned into was not only offering wherever they wanted, but also however and whatever they wanted to offer. They began to create a God in their own image rather than the God of the scriptures. And it invariably led them to idolatry. And so right off the bat, God says, if you're going to worship me, you must worship me in the way that I tell you to worship me. Chapters 21 and 22 of Leviticus address how the priests are supposed to dress, what the priests are supposed to do. In fact, the book of Leviticus, the, the title of Leviticus comes from the tribe of Levi, that is the priestly tribe in Israel. And these two chapters tell the priest, this is how you're supposed to make offerings. This is how you're supposed to dress. There is a right way to worship God and there is a wrong way to worship God. Jesus would later say we worship God in spirit and what else? In truth. The things we say about God, the things we think about God, the things we believe, the attitudes we bring in. Even what we are doing throughout the course of the week prior to coming to corporate worship. All of those things matter. And so God will say to the people, if you're going to worship me, you will worship me differently from the way that the nations worship. We pursue holiness, this set-apartness with our worship. Secondly, he says, you're to be holy with your bodies. Chapter 18, chapter 18 of Leviticus provides a lot of rules about sexual purity. There are prohibitions against adultery and against incest and against homosexuality and a number of sexual behaviors. Chapters 11 through 15 of Leviticus address what you're supposed to eat and what you can't eat. You're supposed to even eat and drink differently than the nations around you. They address what do you do if somebody among you gets leprosy and how do you cleanse them? And so the idea is that you are to treat your body even differently from the nations around you. In fact, Leviticus chapter 18, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And then he proceeds to give this list of sexual prohibitions. And the idea is that you are not to engage in the immorality and the violence and the idolatry of the nations around you. The Egyptians' worship and the Canaanites' worship was just full of immorality and violence and even death. And God says, you're to be different. You are to be holy with your worship, with your bodies, with your relationships. Interestingly, holiness now goes beyond simply what I do in private to even the way that I act in public. And so Leviticus chapter 19 has a number of statements about how you are to treat those that you know who are uh, either poorer than you or who are different from you or who are disabled or who are old. Jesus quotes from Leviticus chapter 19 in the New Testament. You'll recognize the quote, Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. I am the Lord. Remember when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He says the first one is you love God, right? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says the second one, it's like it. Why is the second one like it? Well, ultimately because the second commandment flows from the first one. If you want to reflect God, if you want to be holy and set apart to God, that also affects how you treat other people. And he says, the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so there are uh, some great, uh, interesting commands that we see as we read through Leviticus 19. For example, in the presence of the old and the gray-headed, you are to rise. I think we should still do that, right? As my hair grays, rise up. You're not to put an obstacle in the path of those who are blind or lame or deaf. You are to welcome the stranger who comes from another nation, he says, and treat them as if they were one of you. You are to reserve a portion of your land and of your crops for the poor. In other words, the way you treat others reflects the holiness of God. So he says, I want you to be different than the nations around you. I want you to be different from the other people around you in the world with your worship, with your bodies, with your relationships. Fourthly, with our time. Brian recently spoke about the feasts and the festivals of Israel. And one of the points that I know he made was this, that the feasts and festivals reminded the people of Israel that even as they moved throughout their week and their month and their year, their time was set apart as holy unto God. So you had weekly cycles, and you had seasonal cycles, and you had yearly cycles. You even had cycles every seven years with the sabbatical year for the land, and then every 49 years with the day of Jubilee. And so as they went throughout their week, they would always remember every seventh day is the Sabbath reserved to the Lord. And several times a year is a time where we will pause and we will go to the temple and we will worship God. And then every seven years, we're supposed to let the land rest, which, by the way, they almost never really did. And then every 49th year, the land would revert to its original owner so that even the cycle of our time is holy. And even our money and our possessions are set aside as holy. Chapter 25 talks about especially the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. And you may remember when Brian talked about the year of Jubilee, the idea is this, that every 49 years, uh, every piece of property would go back to its ancestral ownership. Because what would happen in the nation of Israel is you might find yourself in a financial hardship. And one way to get out of that financial hardship was to sell yourself into indentured servitude or to lease out your land to somebody who had more money so that you could get the money you needed to pay off your debts. But, but every 49 years, the land had to go back to its original ownership. And the, the reason that that would happen in the nation of Israel is twofold. One, it prevented anybody from suffering forever because of the poor decisions of their grandparents or great-grandparents. You did not have ongoing, permanent, generational poverty. But the other reason this happens is because God is reminding them, this isn't your land. The land itself is set apart to me. I gave it to you, and it's holy. You treat it as holy. 
And so when you give a portion of your crops, Leviticus 25 says, when you give a portion of your crops to the poor, that's not taking away something that belongs to you. That's being generous with what I have given to you. Because you're called to be different, set apart, and holy. So what we see in the book of Leviticus, and especially in Leviticus 17 to 26, is this principle. Holiness includes every aspect of life. First of all, there's no such thing as a private sin. Certainly in our culture, we view certain sins as private sins. In other words, if it happens behind closed doors and it doesn't seem to directly hurt anybody, then what's the problem? We think about that especially in the realm of sexual sin in our culture. What I do behind closed doors, what I look at in the privacy of my home, what I fill my mind with, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, what's the problem? But what we see in the book of Leviticus is there's no such thing as a private sin. And why is that? Because all of God's people are a part of a community. And what happens if one member of that community begins to delve deeply into thoughts and actions and attitudes that are unholy? Well, what I'm doing is I'm removing the opportunity for one member of the community, myself, to actively and productively contribute to reflecting and proclaiming God in that community. And that hurts everybody. Unholiness in private cannot but help affect the way I treat people in public, the way I view people in public, the way I think and the way I speak. And so you get this idea in the book of Leviticus, in fact, that unholiness is contagious like a disease. That's why both leprosy and leaven become symbols in the scripture of unholiness. Because both, if they are not checked, will spread throughout the entire community. Several weeks ago, my son was playing in a creek near our home with some of his friends. And they uh, got into some poison ivy. They did not apparently see it. It got onto their skin. And uh, you know, if you've ever had poison ivy or had a kid that has it, you know that uh, until you take a bath, it's very contagious. So what will happen is you go to scratch your leg because it's on there. And then you scratch your face and it ends up on your face. And then you go like this and it ends up on your arm. And before you know it, it's all over your body. And if you touch somebody else before you have cleaned off, it'll get onto their body. Now, it turns out, people have told me, if you take a good bath, then you wash off that oil, then it no longer will be contagious. But, but we didn't actually realize this when he had it. And so uh, our daughters, who are older than our son, our daughters for a couple of weeks treated him like a leper. They basically, everywhere that he went, if he touched a counter, they would follow behind him with disinfectant wipes and wipe it down. If he touched the computer, they would wipe it down behind him. He finally got very upset with this behavior. Stop treating me this way. I kept waiting for them to shout, unclean, unclean, (laughs) whenever he would walk into the room. But what was their fear? Well, it's contagious. What you have will rub off on me. That's how unholiness affects a community. All it takes is a little sin to begin to spread. And it wrecks communities and churches and cultures. And so there's no such thing as a private sin. But at the same time, holiness is not only about personal purity. 
We cannot say I'm pursuing holiness if we are not caring for our neighbor and loving our neighbor, as the scripture calls us. And in fact, part of holiness throughout the scripture is that God is generous and God has a heart, especially for those who are in need and who are weak and who are vulnerable. And that's part of the holiness of God. And so holiness becomes this all-encompassing concept. And so, of course, that raises the question for all of us then, what if we fail? I polled some of my Facebook friends several weeks ago to say, what do you think when you think about holiness? What comes to mind? And by far, the top answer was, holiness isn't something we can do. God is holy. There's no way I could be holy. And you certainly read the book of Leviticus and you get that feeling, don't you? How could anybody do all of this without failing? And yet as you read throughout the Old Testament, you have passages like this in the context of God's commands. He says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. In other words, if you're holy, good things are going to happen to you, Israel. But if you're not, Leviticus 26, starting in verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all of these commandments, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And of course, the problem with the nation of Israel was they dove into sin and unholiness and idolatry over and over and over again. It wasn't an accident. They deliberately chose to run away from the worship and the holiness of God. And so they did incur the judgment of God. They were sent away into exile in Babylon for 70 years, booted off the promised land. And in fact, the scripture says part of that is because they never allowed the land to have its rest. They believed This is our land. We can do what we want. We can worship like we want. We can live like we want. The prophets would say, under every green tree and on every high hill, you have built these altars to your idols. And so they go away into exile. While they are in exile, the prophet Jeremiah is writing words from God. And in the midst of their judgment for their sin, We find this in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God says, Jeremiah, I want you to tell the people that the day is coming when I'm going to write a new covenant. And the new covenant won't be dependent upon how well the people pursue holiness because they've already failed at that. They broke my covenant. 
So I'm going to give them a new one. And in this new covenant, the law will no longer be an external list of regulations, but instead the law will be written right in here, in your hearts and on your minds. And I'm going to forgive them all of their iniquity that they committed under the first covenant and bring them to a place of life and relationship and holiness. He says, I'm going to do that. And as the prophets continue to speak, they begin to tell us of a coming king who would be the mediator of that new covenant. So that in the New Testament, at the Last Supper, the Feast of Passover, as Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, he takes one of the cups, likewise the cup after they had eaten, and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, I will be now the once and for all sacrifice to end all sacrifices because your sin is unending. So is the mercy of God. So is the grace of God. So no longer do we need a human high priest to stand in the temple day after day after day and offer sacrifices for our unending sin. But instead we have one perfect, fully God and fully human high priest, Jesus Christ, who once and for all offered a sacrifice for our sins, his own blood, to mediate a new arrangement between us and God. So that the author of Hebrews now will say this, therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus wrote a new agreement with God. That all who trust in Jesus now have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And then the book of Romans will tell us, if you know Jesus Christ, here's what happens is that now the spirit of God can live within you. If you've been cleansed of your impurity and your unholiness by the blood of Jesus Christ, now the spirit of God lives within you. So that as we read the Old Testament, we read a list of regulations, right? And and sometimes we ask, what of this applies and what of this does not apply today? And here's what we see is that that many of the regulations and rules in the book of Leviticus, they were written to an ethnic group of people gathered under the rulership of God on a particular piece of property at a particular time. They They were written under the assumption that you would have to have a tabernacle or a temple to make sacrifices. But that's no longer the case. But what has not changed is the character of God. What has not changed, and we see it in the book of Revelation, is that God is still holy. And in fact, what has not changed is that God still calls us to be holy as he is holy. The book of 1 Peter, Peter says, as he who called you is holy, you will also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He just quotes Leviticus. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus cleansed you from unholiness, filled you with the spirit. And now he says, you are still called to be holy, which is why. 
almost all of the Ten Commandments are repeated in some form in the New Testament. It's not because we're still under a list of laws. It's because the character of God remains the same. So when the New Testament tells us not to commit adultery, that's because the character of God is still one of loyalty and faithfulness and purity. When the New Testament tells us not to steal or not to lie, that's because the character of our God is both generous and truthful and we are still called to reflect him. But now the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Paul would say, has set us free from the law of sin and death. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the law is written on our hearts. And so we have capacities we did not previously have. We have opportunities for holiness that the people struggled with under the law because it provided rules with no empowerment. And in Jesus Christ, we've been given holiness and through the Spirit, empowerment to do his will. So what do we do as believers in Jesus Christ then if we struggle with holiness? Let me me close with a few thoughts. I want to encourage each of us this week Ask yourself this question. Where does your life fall short of the holiness of God? Now, you you hear that question, and and a few weeks ago, somebody came up to me and said, I asked that question, and my answer was everywhere. And, And that's the right answer. Because there is no area of our lives in which we are fully in conformity with the holiness of God. But it may be that right now, As you hear this message, there is some particular area of your life. Maybe it's a private area. Maybe it's a public area where you know that you really struggle in this area of holiness. And maybe the Spirit's been convicting you for weeks, months, or years. Where does your life fall short? In those areas where your life falls short, let me offer three quick suggestions. One... Confess and seek forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I have fallen short. I ask your forgiveness. And then you say, God, I need your help. You pray for help, not just once, not just twice, but moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year. You begin to develop in your life new patterns and habits of holiness. Here's what I would challenge you to do. You say, there's some area of my life in which I really struggle with holiness. Maybe it is something I say. Maybe it is something I look at. Maybe it is the way I treat others who are either close to me or far away. And you say, I really struggle in this area of holiness. Here's here's what I want to challenge you to do. Simply grab a notebook or a journal over the course of the next week. Every time you find yourself tempted in this area of holiness, all I want you to do is open it up and just make a notation. Could be just a little mark. Only you have to know what it means. A little mark, little I'm struggling today, whatever it is. Just write it down. Just acknowledge the struggle. And then in that moment, you go straight to the Lord and you say, God, help me today. To reflect your holiness in this area. And then you set that journal aside. And it may be in another day, another week. Or it may be in the next 10 minutes you struggle again. So you open it up again. 
and you make a note and you turn to God in prayer and you begin to develop new habits of holiness in your life. That you say, instead of diving into that sin, what I want to do is I want to dive into dependence upon God through the power of his spirit. To begin to develop habits of holiness. So that I can be holy as God is calling me to be holy. Because God is holy. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for this time. Father, we all confess that in large and in small ways, we have failed to reflect your holiness. Father, we pray that you would forgive us and we pray that you would help us. Lord, we want to be people who reflect and proclaim you and we want to do so faithfully and accurately. Not because we're trying to earn your favor. Not because we're trying to prove we are better than other people but because you love us and because you've called us to know you through your grace and you've given us the privilege of representing you. We pray we would do that faithfully. Father, I pray if there are any in this room this morning who don't know you through Jesus Christ, that the forgiveness and the grace that you have offered through Jesus would be clear and that even in this moment, you would draw that person to belief in you. We thank you, Father, for your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.